North Korea is the impossible state. It's a place that stumped leaders and policymakers for more than three decades. It has a complex history, and it has become the United States' top national security priority. Each week on this show, we'll talk with the people who know the most about North Korea. All right. Good morning, everyone here in D.C. Good evening, everyone in Korea. Good day to everybody around the world. Uh, welcome to panel one of the ROK U.S. Strategic Forum 2022. Uh, we just heard two scintillating keynote addresses. We're off to a running start, and we're going to round this out with panel one this morning. And we have an all-star packed lineup here on panel one of heavy hitters, as they will, would say in, in baseball terms, but let me get into their bios. You know them well. Uh, anyone who's been in, in and around the Korea issue set knows this crew very well, but let me introduce them quickly, uh, their formal uh, bios and introductions, and look them up online, too, because I will not go through their, all of their myriad of accomplishments, but I will get through some of them. So let's go first to Dr. Yong Kwan Yoon. Foreign Minister Yoon is the Professor Emeritus at the Department of Political Science and International Relations at Seoul National University from 2003 to 2004. He happened to serve as a small position as Minister of Foreign Affairs and Trade <laughs> at the Republic of Korea. He also worked as the Senior Visiting Scholar with the Korea Project at the Belfer Center for Science and International Affairs from 2020 to 2021, where I suspect he overlapped with my good friend Ash Carter and also taught at Harvard University writ large. Taught at University of California, Davis, served as chairman of the advisory committee of the parliamentary diplomacy of the Korean National Assembly from 19 to 20, and a host of other accomplishments. He has published uh, over a dozen books, 80 articles in the fields of international political economy, Korea's foreign policy, and inter-Korean relations. Uh, he received a doctoral degree from SICE right here in Washington. Welcome, Minister Yoon. All right, next up, Robert Rapson, senior diplomat of the United States, retired recently after a illustrious 39-year career in the Foreign Service, really that spanned the Indo-Pacific region, Korea, Japan, Southeast Asia, India, and Afghanistan, touched all four corners there. Uh, as Chargé d'Affaires and a Deputy Chief of Mission at U.S. Embassies in Seoul, Tokyo, and Kuala Lumpur, he advanced significant U.S. political, economic, commercial, security, law enforcement, public diplomacy interests with those countries in the region. Also, a range of other service uh, in Korea specific. He was uh, director of the Office of Korean Affairs at the Department of State 2012 to 2015, which is critically important, but often unrecognized or un underrecognized job in the State Department. It does yeoman's work uh, in making sure the bilateral relationship stays on top, and Rob handled that really well. He was also deputy economic counselor and senior trade officer at U.S. Embassy Seoul from 97 to 2000, vice consul at U.S. Embassy Seoul in U.S. Consulate Busan 84 to 86, recipient of numerous State Department individual and group superior honor awards, BA in international relations from Penn State, Nittany Lions Go, and as a graduate of Singapore American High School. Welcome, Rob, to the panel. All right, next up, my favorite retired Air Force intelligence officer, Dr. Sang Yoon Ma. I'm giving away part of his bio here. He's a professor of international relations at the Catholic University of Korea, formerly served as director general for strategy at the Ministry of Foreign Affairs from 16 to 19. He was also a visiting fellow at Brookings and the Wilson Center here in DC, also a think tank in Stockholm, ISDP, and fulfilling military service responsibilities. He worked, as I previously noted, ROK and Air Force Intelligence Officer 89 to 92. Dr. Ma, received his BA and MA in international relations from Seoul National University. As a Swire scholar, he continued his studies at St. Anthony's College, Oxford University, where he received his DPhil in international relations. And his main areas of research include East Asian international politics, U.S. foreign policy, 
Korea, U.S. relations, and Cold War history. Last but certainly not least, Dr. Victor Cha. I don't even need to use his bio because I introduce him every week, every other week on the Capitol cable. He's the vice dean at Georgetown University. He uh, runs the Korea chair uh, here at CSIS, former Bush NSC. Also, I think, plays a mean game of tennis or at least long distance swimming in Hawaii. There's a whole myriad of facts here, but everybody knows Victor. And Victor, welcome to the panel as well. So with that, let's get into it. And I'm going to go to foreign minister, the foreign minister first, because one, he's the most uh, senior person on the panel. And two, I wanted to really take advantage of his expertise in academia, but also as minister. And it really dovetails with what we talked about with Secretary Crittenbrink. And Secretary Crittenbrink admonished us to talk more globally, vice regionally. Okay, so stipulated. But let's pick up off of the summit here, Foreign Minister. You've been through a couple summits yourself. And let's go right to the, the crux of the matter. We've got, I'm going to talk about three quick pieces, right? We've got the joint statement that outlined the outcomes, number one. Number two, I would say the two keynotes we heard today, which were summations of where the relationship is and is, is headed on a range of issues. And three, the personal chemistry between the two presidents, which we've heard a lot about on both sides. And I think people who were there in and around the summit would attest to that there was a chemistry and there was alignment and leaders matter. So in terms of this next step of working together globally, something that isn't new, it's been around for a while, but probably more emphasized here today coming off of this summit, where are we headed in terms of the relationship, number one? And number two, how would you sift through how to prioritize this big, broad, sweeping agenda that we've now heard touching on everything from people to people to values to economic security to some of the more traditional security areas? Foreign Minister, the floor is yours. Broad brush strokes, and please get us, get us off to a fast start here on panel one. Thank you very much uh, for your kind introduction and uh, wonderful uh, questions uh, to think about. I think the uh, Biden-Yun summit was uh, successful for a few reasons. Uh, first, from a Korean uh, I mean, observer's perspective, I think it was a quite successful event. First, the value factor, uh, you mentioned already that about that, and uh, I think there are I mean, uh, important uh, universal uh, values which are respected by global communities, such as uh, uh, democracy, freedom, and uh, human rights, uh, the rules-based international order, something like that. I think Korean diplomacy, Korea's diplomacy, uh, I mean, should uh, be guided by those uh, principles in one way or another. However, uh, in the recent uh, several years, Korean diplomacy tended to be much influenced by some kind of emotional nationalism rather than universal values. So as a result, Korea's diplomacy could not mobilize full support domestically and internationally. And this joint statement confirmed that alliance relationship and the future vision for both allies as a kind of global comprehensive strategic alliance should be rooted deeply in those common values. And I think this is important factor, and this is one of the most important implication of the summit meeting from a medium and long-term perspective. On the other hand, the summit meeting and the joint statement widened the scope of Korea's diplomacy. Uh, Korea's diplomacy tended to narrowly focus on the Korean Peninsula issue. I think it is quite understandable for Korean leaders to try to stabilize inter-Korean relationship and try to establish a permanent peace on the Korean Peninsula. However, I think uh, it shouldn't take uh, all the other uh, diplomatic issues hostage. And uh, it is quite the case, especially when Korea has become number 10 uh, largest economy in the world, and uh, it, it needs to focus uh, more on how to contribute to the global community. So I think this uh, joint statement provided 
various areas and methods of cooperation, mutual cooperation in that regard, contributing to the global community more actively. And the third important implication of the summit meeting was that from a national interest perspective of both the United States and South Korea, we both allies are facing serious challenges, that is economic security and uh, also, I mean, upgrading technologies. And this joint statement provided uh, various issues and areas of mutual cooperation in that regard. For those three reasons, I think uh, the summit meeting was quite successful. However, I mean, uh, I heard Assistant Secretary's uh, speech this morning, and I was quite assured about security uh, of the Korean uh, Peninsula. However, I'm a little concerned uh, because uh, probably President Biden and his team may be preoccupied uh, by many (coughs) other important issues like the Ukraine war, China issues, Iranian negotiation, and uh, all the other uh, important domestic uh, political issues, including midterm elections or something like that. So I'm wondering how much uh, political capital will be left for President Biden and his team to invest on on the North Korean issue. On the other hand, uh, North Korea is becoming uh, more and more impatient and there's a clear I mean, uh, mismatch between the U.S. situation and North Korean situation, which may become a kind of important uh, structural cause for the coming kind of uh, crisis. So I think it's time for preventive diplomacy. And I would like to uh, I mean, uh, recommend the Biden administration to seriously consider dispatching a special high-level envoy to North Korea to, I mean, mediate the crisis situation and to begin dialogue. We have lots of escalation mechanism on the Korean Peninsula, but we don't have de-escalation mechanism. That's the big problem, I think. Thank you. Excellent. Let me just follow up on that last point and not to turn this into a North Korea discussion, but Mr. Minister, it seems as though the comment you're making is that the current structure where we've got Sung Kim as ambassador in Jakarta, but dual hatted as special envoy for North Korean issues is something you would like to see modified and changed and perhaps either a full time envoy or a high level envoy or perhaps a more permanent line serving official like the deputy secretary go to North Korea as a one-off engagement. What, what, what are you proposing here, Mr. Minister? High-level official as an one, one-off one-off okay. engagement. Got it. To complement yeah. the yeah, work of some Kim. Yeah, of course. Yes. Okay. Yes. All right. Thanks, Mr. Minister, for the clarification. All right, Victor, over to you. Wake up there. You know, I'm joking. First, I'm going to ask you two questions. One is, since we're on North Korea, it was interesting that th- this issue did not feature prominently or as prominently as in past summits. Uh, and I was going to ask Secretary Crittenbrink that question had we had more time, but over to you for that question. And then I want to come back to you on a follow-up on kind of some values issues. Sure. Well, first, uh, thanks for doing our session this morning with, with Dan, and also thanks for chairing this, this, uh, this panel, Mark, with a really great group of uh, experts and scholars. Uh, yes, I mean, you know, normally when we see a summit meeting between the U.S. and the South Korean president, particularly a first summit meeting, the featured item always is North Korea. But as uh, Dan Crittenbrink said, and as you witnessed personally, President Biden arrived in Korea and the first place he went was not the DMZ or not intense discussions on North Korea, but went to the Samsung plant in Pyeongtaek, which really sent a message about, uh, about the alliance relationship, about the diversification of the scope of the alliance relationship. On North Korea, you know, the message I think was it was low key, but it was very clear, which is that there is airtight alignment between the two, not just in words, but actually in the way they think about the issue. The return to this phrase denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula, denuclearization of North Korea, as President Lee said in his speech this morning, you know, those, those are words that have meaning, given where we were coming from on this, on this issue in the past. And so I thought that was quite significant. And that 
really the serious discussions and more behind the scenes, I think, behind closed doors, not as public, uh, when it came to North Korea, was really on the question of extended deterrence, where uh, you heard Dan Crittenbrink used very clear language when he talked about extended deterrence and the U.S. commitment to defend South Korea with the full range of capabilities. Again, that's specifically chosen language to show that there's a real shoring up the, of the security commitment, the extended deterrence commitment. So I think a focus on North Korea, but largely in terms of the alliance, of course, open to diplomacy when the time presents itself, but uh, there doesn't seem to be much interest on the part of North Korea right now. And perhaps that is why Foreign Minister Yun is calling for this, uh, for this special envoy. All right, let's, that's, that's excellent on North Korea. Let's pivot a little bit to the global and regional issues as befitting the, the name of this panel. Both Secretary Clinton Brink and Foreign Minister Yoon, just in his opening intervention, mentioned the values-based diplomacy, right? Victor, this is something you've made a long uh, career writing about in academia. Uh, you're, you're a vocal on these issues. And we talk about being guided by principles. Uh, we talk about these universal and global principles. How does that dovetail with the bilateral nature of this relationship between Washington and Seoul that does have unique bilateral components to it, but yet also shares some of these universal values? How are we thinking about the values issues in that context, one, and then two, where are we headed on this bucket of issues? Is this something that is only going to be around for this, this current presidency or maybe a few years and then we might shift? Or do you think this is here to stay? Well, I certainly hope it's here to stay. I mean, this, I think, is the natural place where the U.S.-Korea alliance should be. Again, in sort of academic writing, I've written about how there are three types of alliances, right? There's alliances that are formed strictly for a military purpose that come apart once the threat the two allies want to address is gone. There are alliances that are more institutionalized based on values, where they stand not just against something, but they stand for something. And I think that's where the U.S.-Korea alliance is headed and where it should be headed and where it should be, that's where its permanent home is. I mean, I think there is a, a, a natural and a mutually beneficial alignment there. As uh, I think uh, President Lee uh, stated in his remarks this morning, Korea is the 10th largest economy in the world, one of the most capable militaries in the world, a country that is an affluent, industrialized democracy at a time when the liberal international order is being threatened by actions in Europe, by uh, China's assertiveness, by North Korea's missile testing and nuclear testing. And this is when allies need to come together and play a role, not just providing private goods to each other bilaterally, but providing broader goods for the environment in which they've all grown up and prospered. So I think that's incredibly important. The, I thought this summit was a paradigm shift in that it was not just a focus on military security, which is of course very important, but the alliance has gone from a military security alliance to an economic alliance through Chorus, and now it's an alliance that's focused on sustainability and stability, right? Broader political and economic stability and sustainability. And if there's one place where this alliance should be focused going into the future, and we'll talk about this afternoon also in panel three, is it's on supply chains and economic security. Because that ties into everything. It's not just an issue of economics, it's an issue of strategy, it's an issue of regional cooperation and support for the, uh, the rules-based international order. All right, outstanding. Let me go next to Mr. Rapson. Rob, um, question for you. You've uh, been a practitioner, as your bio suggests or strongly intimates or explicitly states, uh, whatever the case may be. The, the question that I have for you is put yourself back in some of your old, old roles where you were managing bilateral pieces of this relationship. How do you think through management of Washington and Seoul while uh, pushing this new global agenda that is sweeping in nature? How do you prioritize? How do you operationalize? One. And two, your thoughts on the potential of U.S. ROK in terms of a global alliance that tackles global problems together. Robert Florgers. Thanks, Mark. Uh, and thanks for the kind intro up front. Thanks to CSIS for having me here today, Korea Foundation as well. Uh, it's great to be here. It's great to be here in person, you know, one of those rare occasions. 
And it's also personally great to be here. This is my first public uh, outing mm -hmm. since retiring last month from the State Department after 39 years. So if I slip into Diplo speak or government <laughs> babble, uh, give me a little kick on the shins and I'll try to pep it up a little bit. As we heard from Dan, uh, Dan Crittenbrink, as we heard from the Blue House Secretary Wong, I mean, this, the summit was a success in every meaning of the word. It's two weeks now since the summit, and many analysts have gone through it and have picked apart all the content. And uh, I would agree completely that it's now taking the relationship, it's um, expanding the horizon for cooperation across the board, making it global in nature, uh, while also working some very discrete issues regionally, economically, and all. It's a lifting of the relationship, the framework for lifting the relationship in so many ways. That said, I see some continuity here. I worked on the summit last year, the summit where President Moon came to Washington, and there was a rather impressive joint statement and a fact sheet that laid out many of the features that we see today, although today now we see an expansion of that universe of opportunity and potential for the Korea-U.S. relationship. Of course, the proof is in the pudding, and implementation and follow-through is essential. That's hard. Uh, Dr. Yoon, you touched upon that. There, you know, there are distractions throughout the day, the week, the month uh, on both sides. But if you look at the intention, the commitments embedded in the, uh, in the statements, as well as the words from the presidents themselves, it looks to me that we stand a very good chance, both sides following through on many, if not most, all of the, uh, the commitments that underlie uh, the joint statement. There's always been potential for um, global cooperation. In fact, Korea has been engaged globally in, in so many ways, primarily economically uh, over the many decades and years that I've been working on Korea. But that's expanded. Uh, Korea's commercial footprint has grown into a development assistant footprint, and now it's looking to match some of that uh, regionally and maybe globally on the strategic side as well. There's great potential, again, for, uh, for Korea to be doing more. What I would go back and also, uh, and Dan Crittenbring touched on, and as a practitioner of foreign policy over these many years, it's not easy to put these summits together, and especially uh, when the counterpart has only been in office for 10 days and hadn't quite yet moved into his own office uh, to host uh, a visiting U.S. president. But timing is everything, and the timing for this visit was perfect. I don't recall, and I think it's first, that uh, a sitting U.S. president arrived in Korea so early on in an administration. So kudos to the teams on both sides for the logistics of putting this summit together, but also for making it happen during the time frame it did. I mean, uh, President Yun could have said, hey, I, you know, I'm busy right now. I really can't accommodate President Biden. I've got to take care of a lot of things. I'm just in the office. I'm learning. I don't even have my staff in place yet. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, recognizing the import of doing this and bilateral summit with the U.S., he welcomed the president. And I think the chemistry, is, uh, as, uh, as Dan described, as uh, you described, Mark, you were there witnessing the, uh, the visit to the uh, Samsung factory. It was all very positive, and it augurs uh, very well for the relationship going forward. But, you know, there are, are bad actors out there who uh, are going to test that proposition. And uh, the North Koreans are doing that now, so it'll be interesting to see how this evolves as the new president, President Yun, assumes office and now takes on the heavy mantle of governing and, uh, and leading the country forward. All right, outstanding, Rob. Let me, let me uh, ask you one follow-up question. In terms of, I'll just quote uh, Scott Schneider from CFR. Scott made the point uh, a week ago that the fact sheet under Moon Biden felt like the sides were kind of trading off equities, right, and basically accumulating a large fact sheet full of very interesting deliverables, but kind of looked like trade-offs. This one, uh, he said, he thought that it looked a lot more like the two sides were in large agreement and putting down on paper what they had basically agreed to and were going to work together on. So augurs well for implementation, uh, according to Scott. The question that I have for you, to come back to Foreign Minister Yoon's uh, comments, is that we've got, and you touched on them too, Rob, we've got this big global agenda, two pretty robust joint statements, fact sheets, whatever you want to call them, from two summits, lots to do, and then very, very crowded agenda here in Washington, right? To use Foreign Minister Yoon's list, mm -hmm. I've got China, Ukraine, Iran, domestic political issues. As a practitioner, as someone who, you know, has to basically work in, you know, 12 hours a day, maybe 16 hours a day uh, with the resources you're given, how do you see the bandwidth issue uh, in terms of North Korea, global Korea, the bilateral relationship? Rob, the floor is yours. Yeah, I mean, bandwidth is an issue. 
our NSC, the State Department, and all the related agencies are consumed with equally, if not more important agendas or urgent agendas at this time. So setting aside that bandwidth to get the essentials done so that there are not big lapses or time goes by where we haven't moved, we haven't been able to meet. But uh, in the first week, two weeks after the summit, we're seeing the principals, the senior officials, U.S. officials, making the time to go out. Wendy Sherman going out. Sung Kim is a regular, frequent traveler to Seoul. And we'll just need to see more on the economic agencies. And that's where I think if, uh, if I have uh, any concerns, it would be the bandwidth on the economic security team at State at, and the NSC being able to engage in a robust way with, uh, with their Korean counterparts. I don't have any question that on the Korean side uh, that they'll be fully engaged and uh, President Yoon will make sure that his team is doing all of it, all it can to uh, make the, uh, the summit outcomes uh, real. No, thanks, Rob. Thanks for that. And I was struck by the, the, the Secretary's comments about all the institutional mechanisms that the Koreans are busy standing up on the economic security agenda. It's pretty interesting to deal with the bandwidth issue uh, on their end. So I think your point is, is interesting in terms of our economic agencies watch that space. Perhaps that's for panel uh, three later on this afternoon. All right, uh, Professor Ma, we've kept you on ice for way too long, but I did want to set you up in terms of getting through this and bringing you to the strategy question. You are the strategy expert here uh, up on the, the stage. And the question that I have for you is thinking through your old hat uh, or your old job the, at the Blue House rather, where you're, you're charged with compiling all of this and basically prioritizing uh, and formulating a strategy that is workable for the bilateral relationship how do you see this? We've talked about all of the global issues. We've talked about bandwidth issues. We've talked about DPRK and the Korean Peninsula issues. If you're thinking through now coming off of this summit, two leaders, great chemistry, big list of things to do. How do we formulate this into a coherent, cohesive strategy between the two allies that effectively prioritizes this vast problem set and then allows for effective and efficient implementation. Professor Ma, the floor is yours. Thank you very much for inviting me and a very interesting and very daunting question to answer. Basically, the summit was a success as all the participants just mentioned, but at the same time there are some areas to be discussed further in the later time. Uh, I think uh, the priority question is number one question that we have to answer, but with just regarding uh, the uh, North Korean denuclearization question, I think the question itself was not much addressed uh, in the summit and in the joint statement. And uh, addressing the denuclearization of North Korea or the Korean Peninsula itself actually quite tightly linked to the regional issue, regional uh, uh, politics. Uh, especially the U.S.-China uh, competition directly affects uh, how China uh, views uh, North Korea, uh, the value of the strategic uh, value of the North Korea. Uh, in, uh, as we all know, uh, back in 2017, China agrees to the uh, passing the uh, U.N. security resolution on uh, posing uh, sanctions on North Korea. Uh, but now China opposes every uh, steps that the uh, U.S. And, and South Korea would like to put on the, new, uh, the UN agenda. So the, in the background, uh, U.S.-China relationship and the regional affairs and how Korea tried to, uh, can I say, uh, went on, on, the, on, on that terrain uh, directly affects uh, the denuclearization question. I wonder uh, whether our government or the American government actually are thinking and, and planning on that very difficult question and a very sensitive question as well, especially because uh, regional and the uh, Korean Peninsula are very tightly uh, linked. So well, in, when we uh, start uh, thinking about strategy, we, we, we have to uh, take uh, into consideration of those uh, two domains at the same time. Excellent. And let's, let's tease you out a little bit. Let's draw you out a little bit on the question of China and broaden it a little bit away from North Korea, right? Obviously, you really outlined the issue well in terms of there's this complicated geopolitical issue that has a direct impact on North Korea. One could argue that 
there's a complicated geopolitical relationship between Washington and Beijing that impacts the region, if not the world. Your thoughts in terms of where the Republic of Korea sits in this mix, right, in terms of the U.S.-China question. I know this is a, a big question in the Republic of Korea. Where does it sit and what did you see from the summit in terms of the direction that the alliance is heading on the China issue writ large? Well, it is quite clear that the, the Republic of Korea is taking more, uh, you know, stronger relationship with the United States. Uh, and, uh, well, the wish to uh, strengthen the alliance is uh, very much uh, vivid in the joint statement. But at the same time, we, we cannot uh, miss the, the point that uh, uh, the joint statement was very much uh, careful uh, in somehow trying to avoid the sentences or phrases that might, you know, uh, somehow provoke Chinese uh, uh, sentiment. So, well, it was a very, well, carefully written uh, statement, I think. Uh, so in that regard, uh, Korea, and even in our previous uh, speech by the uh, Secretary Wang, he, he mentioned that uh, Korea still wants to preserve its uh, cooperative relations with China, especially in terms of uh, economic relations. So I think, uh, well, we, we may have to be careful. Korea is not really taking a very clear side, but at the same time, Korea was want, wanting to and still wants to uh, strengthen uh, its alliance relation with the United States. Okay, one more follow-up to you, then I'm going to come back to Foreign Minister Yoon. If you were back, Professor Ma, and Foreign Minister, you can get ready because I'm going to ask you the same question. First of all, if you were back in your job at the Blue House, now Yongsan, and it's late at night and the president calls you and says, what should we, be th- what should we do about China? Where, where should we be headed? What would your answer be? Well, we would like to uh, gradually well, decouple or you know, separate our uh, economic relations with China, but I think uh, it will take very long time. But we have to give a clear signal to our companies and corporations. Well, try not, you know, invest too much in, in that country and try to uh, take an alternative ways to uh, conduct their business with other countries. Uh, but because it will take, um, taking, it will take a very long time, uh, the process has to be very gradual. So in the meantime, we have to maintain you know, uh, somewhat uh, cooperative relations with Chinese with the leadership. That's, uh, you, know, you know, inevitable. All right, excellent. Thanks, Professor. Foreign Minister Yoon, same qu- set of questions to you. Question one is your analysis of the direction of the U.S. ROK alliance vis-a-vis China, and two, your recommendations on where we should be heading as an alliance uh, with respect to China, the big regional and global question, I would say, one of the big <gasps> regional and global questions at the heart of Washington and Seoul relations. Over to you, Foreign Minister. I think the fact that President Yoon suk yeol uh, agreed on the contents of joint statement, which uh, emphasized the importance of value as a guideline of alliance, has uh, already made the position of Korean government clear in terms of its relationship with China. Uh, what I'm saying is the relationship between the United States and China, uh, United States and uh, ROK is qualitatively different from our relationship with China in the sense that we share common values with the United States and we are allies for seven decades. And uh, our relationship with China is different from that kind of uh, I mean, alliance relationship. So we need to make it clear, I mean, quietly to the top leaders of uh, China, and uh, that will make a bilateral relationship between Korea and South Korea and China probably more stable from a long-term perspective, uh, because it may uh, reduce the kind of uh, over-expectations about what South Korea can do to China or cannot do, something like that. So I think our relationship with China, I mean, our ROK-China relationship should be based on common understanding of mutual interest and rule-based international order 
something like uh, I mean respect for sovereignty and mutual understanding uh, about uh, each country's interest or something like that. So I think it's, it's uh, qualitatively different. I mean from our relationship with the United States. So I think that uh, should work as a guideline for Korea's diplomacy. And uh, one, one important thing is that our government or political leaders sometimes should be ready to kind of uh, I mean, face some protest or some difficulties coming from China. But I think even in that kind of uh, situations, uh, Korean leaders should uh, behave kind of with some principle. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's the kind of uh, wise way of doing diplomacy with Chinese people, I think. And the principles that you would like to see followed when Korean leaders face protests or demarches from the Chinese side are, what, what principles would you like to see in there? Uh, for example, we can explain to them that uh, our constitution defines Korea as a democratic state. So it is natural for South Korea to go together with the United States when they promote democracy in the world. I mean, that kind of clear positioning is important uh, to when we explain our situation to Chinese people. But our relationship with China will remain uh, stable and uh, mutually beneficial if they understand our position clearly and uh, if they respect I mean, their own interest uh, in their relationship with South Korea. So I think that's the, that should be the basic guideline with uh, diplomacy with China. Got it. Thanks for the expert uh, commentary there, Foreign Minister. Uh, Rob, over to you. Then I'm going to come to Victor. Then we're going to open up for questions because we're starting to get a little short on time. But Rob, uh, let's let's vector a little different uh, direction in terms of the region. Two areas where you have served, right? Japan, which we're going to do a whole panel on later, but would be interested in your thoughts there. But also Southeast Asia, where you have deep uh, experience as well. How should the U.S. ROK alliance be thinking about those two regions? Uh, in terms of where we can cooperate, our alignment, our posture, in terms of uh, mm -hmm. effectuating a more regional and global outlook yeah. between Washington and Seoul? No, good questions and good points, Mark. If I can just go back to China just for two seconds. Yeah, please. Um, you know, the flashpoint for there, the We last... have a rule here. If you don't like the question, you just no, make I do up like a the question. question. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good it's question. Good. And I, I, won't, I won't hang around China too long. The, the flashpoint, of course, for the last administration, uh, the Moon administration, even for the Park uh, Gane administration, was the THAAD deployment, mm -hmm. the flashpoint with China, which precipitated you know, the actions that we're well familiar mm -hmm. with. Uh, the costs that were uh, put on Korean companies, and some of those costs are still still out there. It begs the question, is there another flashpoint out there or trigger point with China that could precipitate coercive measures of some sort? Don't know. Hopefully we won't have to find out. And then, of course, for the U.S., the big question, and I think this is part of the IPEF framework discussion, is what do we do to help allies and partners who come under the bite of, uh, of Beijing like this in a coercive way. And that's something that needs to be talked about, thought through, because I think the feeling in Korea was that they bore the brunt, Korea bore the brunt of Beijing's coercive measures without any assistance or support uh, from elsewhere. But Southeast Asia is, is a win-win region, and the Koreans bring a lot to the table already through their trade, investment, uh, ODA. Uh, and what we can do, what we've been trying to do uh, to date, but can do more of it, is greater coordination, finding synergies bilaterally, multilaterally with other partners in the region to bring Korean expertise and money to bear uh, in capacity building across the board. Korea has been, you know, that model for so many countries out there. The miracle in the Han has resonance. So uh, just doing a lot more of what we have been doing, and I think there's a willingness on the Korean government's part to invest even more in the region. And they can, you know, they can take that into the strategic realm as well. They've been doing some already through surplus uh, uh, assets, military assets have been provided to some countries. They're uh, you know, working uh, uh, closely with Vietnam and others uh, to build up their uh, abilities. Of course, ASEAN's not a homogeneous entity. It has members that have different interests and different, different connections. And the third piece, I, I served in the, the other country that uh, features heavily now in, in Indo-Pacific discussions in India. I was in India for three years. India is a special case, uh, and the Koreans have been invested there in a long, uh, for a long time, but 
I think there's more that can be done there. And of course, if Korea aspires to Quad status or a, a stronger relationship with Quad, uh, India's thoughts and role are very important in that regard. No, well put, Rob. And I would say a couple of just go-backs. One, when I was ambassador, the Indian relationship was getting um, warmer between the two sides bilateral. I think we had two or three ship visits. We had, uh, I think, six or seven different ministers come through. I mean, it was pretty remarkable. In large part, it was a response to Thad, which was interesting. And on the Thad point, I'll just make one comment, which is interesting in terms of public support for Thad has always been so durable in Korea, despite all of this, right? It's been strong, well over 50%, sometimes going all the way into the 70s percent. It seems though the Korean people have a very clear-eyed view and have really told their uh, leaders what their preference is. And it comes back to Foreign Minister Yoon's comments about democracy being enshrined in the Korean constitution, right? So it's not an insignificant piece of data that there's strong, robust, and durable public support especially among the young generation for that and the moves along the line. So pretty interesting stuff, Rob, that you've teased out. So thanks for that. Please and come back. Just 20 seconds, Please. going back to Professor Ma's point, uh, divesting from China is hard for companies, not just Korean companies, but American companies, European companies. The market is so large, the supply chains are so intertwined that you're right. It's going to take a long time if that effort's going to be successful. Korean companies, I've talked with them uh, over the years, and they all want to divest in some fashion, move their investments elsewhere. Vietnam is a, is a nice location, but it has limits, capacity limits mm -hmm. on how much investment it can take. So what's the next big market or markets out there? Some reside in ASEAN, but they're small. India, the potential's always there. The reality sometimes falls short. So not an easy, uh, not an easy problem to resolve. Best of intentions, but in practice, it's hard to divest completely and decouple, decouple from China. And final point, Rob, just to pick up on your piece on economic retaliation, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the U.S. Congress has asked the administration for a study or a report on what to do about these issues. So some pretty interesting thoughts and activities swirling around that as well. All right, uh, Victor, final word to you. Uh, comments before we open it up to questions. Comments on any of the issues. Good back and forth here in terms of, especially in terms of values, especially in terms of China, Japan, all of that good stuff, but where are we headed in terms of globalizing and or regionalizing uh, this relationship between Korea and the United States? So, so just on the, on the China piece of this, I think, I think Rob's right. I mean, the, the notion of completely decoupling from China is difficult for any country to consider, but I don't think that's really the answer for Korea, right? It's not, it's not the notion of decoupling, but it, it is notion of trying to be able to deter future efforts by China to, to weaponize interdependence the way they did in 2017. And, and that is not something that Korea can do on its own, right? It has to do that in cooperation with other countries that are also subject to China's efforts to economically coerce. Our good friend Bonnie Glazer has come up with a term for this. She calls it collective resilience. Whether that's through IPEF or through other sorts of formations, trilateral with Japan, finding ways of coming together to have countermeasures ready that could be triggered if China again tries to do what they did to Korea in 2017, 2016, 2017, with regard to that. Does that take time? Of course it does. And that's why I think the point that uh, Professor Maud made is important. Like, we need time to do things like this. We need time to organize uh, governments around this, to organize private sector around this. But it is a shift in the way we think about these things. And this idea of collective resilience, I think, is one of the ways to think about deterring future Chinese action, not decoupling from China, but deterring future Chinese action. And then the second point I wanted to make, and you referenced it early, at the very beginning, Mark, is I think a, you know, an important test for the new Yun government when it comes to global Korea will be what else it will do with regard to the war in Europe. Korea has been invited along with Japan, Australia, and New Zealand to the NATO summit in, in, uh, next month in Spain. You know, I think that's a real showcase for President Yun and his administration to really put, to walk the walk in terms of global Korea. Are you holding to your prediction made on the Capitol cable that there will be a big splashed yes. by the Korean government at the NATO summit. Yes, yes. Okay, we're just, holding you to it. Yes, mm -hmm. just like I was incorrect in terms of my prediction about North Korea doing a 
nuclear test during Memorial Day weekend. Um, but I think that this is, it, it's an so important test. I'm going to short test. you on North Korea, but go okay. long on the NATO side. Yeah, okay, yeah. got no, it. But, it, it, but if, if Korea truly wants to be a, a global pivot player, in terms of international stability, this is the most important thing that's happening in the world today that involves Korea's stakes as an important supporter of the, of the rules-based international order. All right, excellent. Uh, Victor, and I know I said this would be the last question, but I'm going to go back one more time to Professor Ma because both the previous panelists mentioned his intervention. I think it did get the creative juices flowing in a really interesting way. Let's go back to this notion on how to deal with China, right? You've got Korean companies, you've got Korean government policy, you've got the U.S., you've got other markets, all of this. And you've got Victor's concept that he brought in from via Bonnie Glazer, um, our former colleague here, of collective resilience. How are you thinking in terms of strategy, the right mix of public versus private, right? You've got market forces, some very, very hard business decisions that have to be made by not just Korean companies, but as Rob pointed out, multinationals on the one hand. On the other hand, you've got industrial policy in more focus here in the United States than it's ever been. But it's also extant, it's been extant rather for many decades in Asia, right, in a different way. And then you've got government high foreign policy going on in the background. What's the right mix here of, of these things in terms of how do, how do leaders in both capitals and business leaders and academics think through this basket of issues? Small little question to you, Professor Ma, to round out the panel. <laughs> Uh, I don't have uh, well, private sector experience, so I'm not sure uh, I'm not the right person to answer <laughs> that uh, very important question. But I think, uh, well, in the previous administration, for example, in, in Korea, Korean companies are complaining that, uh, well, we don't know what's the direction that we are heading. So they were complaining why, why government uh, giving us an uh, direction, even if uh, the, the specific answers to a specific question on the business side. So, well, government has to uh, think up uh, very hard and at least provide some uh, directions that our government's foreign policy is heading and our relations with uh, both uh, China and the United States is being uh, directed then I'm sure our very capable businessmen will find their own answer. Foreign Minister Yoon, do you want to answer or address any of that, that intervention and or the question in terms of how do you think through policy, government, market economics, business, cultural relations as well? I think the most important thing that our government should do is to send a right signal to the private sector so that they can... Uh, predict uh, I mean, what kind of policies will come from our government and how they should readjust their business strategy in accordance to that kind of government policies. Important thing is that top policymakers uh, should make a very correct kind of uh, I mean, policy based on our uh, core judgment of uh, international situation surrounding Korean Peninsula. And uh, I think that's important. And I recently heard that big businesses began to increase their investment in South Korea in recent weeks. I think that uh, I mean, has some implication for the importance of uh, right government policy choices. All right, outstanding. Let's end the panel there in terms of the panelist uh, contributions and interventions to my questions. Now it's, the floor is open uh, to anyone who may want to ask uh, questions for the last 10 minutes or so. So while they're waiting, can I just say on your last question, Mark, about you know, government signal? I mean, yeah. you know, government can signal very clearly, as you know well. They can signal very clearly in terms of what direction they are moving. And they cannot just signal, but they can provide incentives. Right. right for companies, and there's nothing that makes companies respond more than incentives, whether it's in, you know in, in industrial policy or in tax policy. So there are clearly ways to signal directions, even for Korean companies, which are notoriously known for not necessarily following what the government government wants to do. So um, so I think there is a I think there is a way forward here here on this, and I think the administration 
has an the unit administration ha, has an opportunity to do this since it's sort of already laid out how important these issues are very early on in the administration. And just tell me if if this I'm just going to follow up Victor on your comment here. It does seem that it is a complicated mix that we are entering into in this relationship, right? We are broadening it in terms of its scope, in terms of the issue set, right? It's, it's, it's been broadening for a while, but you would say probably that, that breadth is accelerating, yeah. right? Number one. Number two, the, I guess you would say the geographic reach is also enhancing at the same time or expanding too. And three, I would say the issue sets are becoming even more complicated, mm -hmm. right? In terms of that. So sitting back at your old desk at the NSC, you know, Steve Hadley's calling you, you know, how are you thinking through what needs to get done first in this really matrixed yeah. relationship that we find ourselves in? So I, I would say, and not to sort of steal the thunder from this afternoon's panel on economic security and supply chains, I'm seeing them all sitting right in front of us. <laughs> I mean, if I had to pick one, you know, obviously North Korea can present itself as a proximate issue at any moment, right? At any moment they can do that. But thinking in sort of the medium to long term, I would say it really is about economic resilience and supply chain security because that is connected to the China issue, mm -hmm. right? It is connected to cooperation with Japan. It's connected to investment in the United States. It's connected to everything. So, you know, we had the um, presidential secretary for economic security doing the keynote this morning. My hope is that he is and I don't know if he is, he is fully staffed up with folks from different ministries that are reporting to him and that there is a direct counterpart for him in our, in our government, the NSC, because if I had to choose one, it would, it would be that, because I think it reverberates, you know, onto questions of how willing uh, South Korea is to be more vocal on Taiwan, for example, or how willing it is to uh, say more about freedom of navigation. Even though those are not supply chain security issues, they can certainly link to those issues if the concern is is Chinese economic coercion. Yeah, and one one quick follow to that, back to you, Victor. Sorry, just to, it dovetails with what Rob said earlier, right? In that we've got these economic agencies in the U.S. that traditionally haven't played this role, right? right? Mm -hmm. This is newish territory for the United States. I mean, we've run industrial policy in the U.S. We've mainly run it out of the Pentagon. No. Um, you know, you see the AFN commercials, Rob knows them well, of the Pentagon inventing the microwave, right? And uh, <laughs> these, you know, the Pentagon would develop uh, technology, and Ash Carter's book talks a lot about it. They would develop technology, kind of hold it, and then d disperse it, right? Mm -hmm. We're in a very different model now where it's much more commercially available. The business community has to be invested. So we've got a different landscape using different agencies in the U.S. government that probably haven't played as big of a role in the U.S. ROK relationship. The Pentagon is well established. You could argue the trade ministries are well established. I see our uh, former Korean former ambassador to the WTO. That that infrastructure is there. The State Department, as Rob pointed out, lots of activity there. That's well established. This is newish, and in the fact or in the joint statement, we've got a new commercial dialogue right on supply chain. We've got this NSC dialogue. This is all new stuff. So it sounds like to me, Victor, tell me if I'm wrong. Getting the infrastructure and structure up and running from being fully staffed to figuring out how the two sides are going to work with each other is also going to be of paramount importance. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Rob, please come on in. No, I just going to go back to this issue of globalism versus regionalism, and not to be glib here, but the region is going to demand and command attention. And if Korea can get the regional pieces right, starting with Japan, and if Japan can get the regional piece with Korea right, a lot will follow from that. But the opportunities for cooperation in IPEF, I think, will be greater if there's resonance between Tokyo and Seoul, or greater resonance between Tokyo and Seoul. The China piece is always there, and Southeast Asia, you know, hanging the low-hanging fruit for opportunity for Japan and Korea to work together with us and others to uh, promote these values uh, that we were talking about so much. So global, great, but I think the region still, the basics in the region need immediate attention from the administrations. No, very fair in terms of, especially in terms of you look proximate to Seoul, you've got nuclear weapons issues, you've got massive economic 
uh, security and more traditional economic issues. I mean, the region is driving uh, many of these global discussions uh, as well. So it's well put there. All right, so we're at 1130. Uh, it doesn't look like we have any questions. We have about five minutes left. So Victor, I'm gonna ask you to, to just uh, try to wrap up the, uh, the panel here in terms of main conclusions, main summary, main takeaway, and set us up for uh, the following sessions here today. The one thing I would say about the, the Alliance, since the panel is about the Alliance, is you know I think that the things that are different now are that, um, as you mentioned earlier, Scott talked about how the joint statement didn't feel transactional, right? And I think that's, I think that's right. I mean, and, and, and Rob probably knows this well. I'm sure Foreign Minister Yun knows this well. In the past, sometimes the alliance became very transactional. It's like, you know, I'll do this if you do this, right? And, and the joint statements of fact sheets started to look like that. There was no fact sheet for this particular summit just because it was only 10 days after the new government had started. But it doesn't feel like that, right? It feels very different. And that links to my, and that's because there's a common foundation in values and values-based diplomacy and uh, supporting the, the norms-based international order. And that, that relates to the second point, which is trust. Whether you're talking about extended deterrence or whether you're talking about supply chain security, the element of trust in sort of alliance politics is much more central than it was in the past. I mean, if you just talk about an alliance based on transactions, there's not a lot of trust there. It's just like, you do this, I'll do this. We'll coordinate it. But when we're talking about extended deterrence and supply chain resilience, um, trust becomes a much more important factor. And I think that is something that um, both sides have been have working to cultivate in the alliance relationship going forward. All right, Foreign Minister, you in closing comments to you. I agree with Victor. Uh, I mean, the trust factor is uh, most important. And uh, in that regard, I, I was happy to hear President Biden saying, I trust you to mm -hmm. President uh, Yoon suk yeol when he departed Seoul. So I think um, uh, I, I'm, I'm optimistic about the future of our alliance. Let me stop there. All right, Rob. I think the relationship between the two administrations has gotten off to a great start. A foundational document is in place that lays the pathway forward. But the best of plans, of course, will be tested by these outside forces and actors. Uh, the new Korean administration has only been in place for a month. You know, so it's got a, a long, maybe a sharp learning curve as it settles into governing. So we'll have to watch that space carefully. And of course, domestic politics here in the U.S will assert themselves later this year and may have impacts on how we conduct our foreign policy in some respects. So again, those X factors uh, are out there and uh, we'll need to be cognizant and watch those spaces very carefully. All right, outstanding. All right, uh, Professor Ma, last word to you. Well, the tone setting between the two airlines has been very successful and we need uh, further discussions about uh, how to implement the uh, uh, extended deterrence, for example. Uh, the, the United States seems to uh, put emphasis on integrated uh, deterrence, uh, which uh, uh, encompass uh, not only the nuclear deterrence, but also other means to deter North Korean threats, while South Korea seems to more, more focused on how to share nuclear weapons with the United States and some more direct uh, measures. But uh, we need to figure out, I think, uh, in the future. And also, uh, South Korea seems to be more inclined to uh, somehow engage uh, North Korea and uh, in China, perhaps, than the United States. So uh, even though we are putting in a, a similar direction, but there are some uh, differences in degree, uh, and uh, we, need, we need to figure out how will be the, our uh, you know, common uh, strategy in the future. All right, outstanding. We're going to leave it there. Professor Ma, Mr. Repson, Foreign Minister Yoon, Dr. Cha, thank you. Outstanding panel. Got us off to a fabulous start throughout the day here for setting up panels two and three well, and we are looking forward to a great day of discussion and dialogue on a critical set of issues. Again, thank you uh, to the panelists. Big round of applause, please. Thank you, Mark. Thank you. If you have a question for one of our experts about the impossible state, email us at impossiblestate at csis.org.
If you want to dive deeper into the issues surrounding North Korea, check out Beyond Parallel. That's our micro website that's dedicated to bringing a better understanding of the Korean peninsula. You can find it at beyondparallel.csis.org. And don't forget to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. That's so more listeners can find us. It's very helpful. We're now also streaming on Spotify, so you can find us there too, where you find all your music. How cool is that? And don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This is The Impossible State.